welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, I regularly get emails from listeners to the show, and that's always pleasant. I mean, usually they're not complaining because if they were, they would probably just not bother writing. Uh, But it's good to get the positive feedback. It's kind of fuel for the hamster wheel, uh, if you will. I enjoy doing the show, but um, if I was doing it into a void, I would stop. So knowing that people are listening and uh, getting something out of it is really uh, key to my uh, happiness. And um, uh, often when people write, they complain, however, that the shows are too brief, or at least with some of the guests. Um, and I, I agree. Uh, as a, one of uh, a stream of shows on the Progressive Radio Network, I'm allotted a an hour slot, and I've been here since the beginning. And uh, I kind of like uh, the coziness of uh, being part of a larger enterprise. Uh, even though it does restrict the time of the show to about 57 minutes. Um, so unless I get uh, my act together enough to start up a whole page where there's extra shows and goodies and things for people who want to pay more and blah, 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 uh, we'll continue in this uh, free radio modality and uh, instead turn to the two-parter. Uh, so uh, today's show will be the first time that I'm doing a second part uh, of an interview probably try to do this more uh, in the future, at least some of the time. Um, Today's guest is Eric Wargo, for those of you who uh, weren't uh, tuning in last week, uh, who's the author of Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to him for longer is that uh, Eric's core argument, which is that there's uh, there is precognition, and in some sense, we are our brains are able to perceive signals uh, from the future. Not so much in some mystical, supernatural, prophetic way, but just because of the physics of space time. Uh, that this idea it rubs uh, so harshly against our kind of natural, or at least modern sense of time and the open-endedness of the future, the open-endedness of our decisions, that it's actually uh, really a tough thing to wrestle with. Uh, So I thought it would be worth uh, spending another hour uh, talking to Eric about his very intriguing ideas because the way in which he talks about his relationship to science, to humanities, to psychoanalysis, and just to uh, writing and thinking in general is so rich that even if you uh, are resistant to the core idea, which I admit I remain, uh, it's a very worthwhile journey to take. All right. Uh, well, welcome back, our Eric. Welcome to uh, Expanding Mind, part two of our conversation on uh, time loops. And, you know, I think I just want to start out with that idea of time loops, because by time loops, you're not just talking about precognition, about the presentiment of some future state or future learning experience that I will, my brain will go through. You're talking about something a little weirder than that, and yet you... Uh, you show many examples of it, and it's, a, it's such a intriguingly mysterious, enigmatic, and, and kind of thrilling idea. Um, so what, what exactly do you mean by uh, the time loop? Yeah, what I mean is, uh, first of all, I, I, as I say in the book, I don't mean that the time itself, you know, somehow the fabric of space-time is looping back on itself. That's not what I mean. I'm, I'm using the term time loops as kind of a convenient term for what we what we really call self-fulfilling prophecies. 
that is to say, uh, a you know, you have, for instance, a precognitive dream, which your actions are somehow influenced by that dream. And those actions wind up leading to the situation that you precognized. Now that on the surface, that sounds like, wait a minute. Now that, you know, that's, that's not, you're not playing fair somehow with logic uh, and, and so forth. I mean, that's, it's, it's a tautology if, you know, in the world of, of term papers and, 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 uh, science, you know, and scientific arguments that that's a no, no, you don't like, uh, you know, you don't, support your your premise by your uh, conclusions or or vice versa the but in a world where information refluxes into the past whether we're talking on a quantum level or on a human level or both uh self-fulfilling prophecies would have to be the norm I mean, they would have to be, they would have to exist. And I, I think the, the, the big contribution I, I feel like I'm making in this book is to say, look, if precognition is real, and I provide lots of evidence why it's real, then we have to accept this notion of self-fulfilling prophecy, that that, that not only ought to happen sometimes, but that it would maybe kind of be inevitable. And that more than that, maybe that's the real kind of secret hidden structure of our lives and our psychology. Um, and, uh, and it would make sense, a really parsimonious sense of a lot of kind of disparate, um, kinds of experiences uh, that, that kind of get uh, put in separate bins because people haven't really connected them up that well. But it, it would make a sense of a lot of different, you know, uh, paranormal phenomena, for instance, and uh, it could certainly unify, you know, the field of ESP uh, phenomena. Can, can you give a good, uh, a concrete example you talk about in the book, or one one that really helps when you're you're explaining this idea of the of the kind of how the self fulfilling prophecy works? Well, the best idea uh, I think is is the case of Carl Jung's patient uh, Maggie Quarles von Ufford and Ufford. Uh, she is the patient that. Uh, is at the center of the famous Scarab story, which I'm sure all of your listeners probably have heard, you know, a million times and read a million times because it's probably the most, you know, one of the most retold anecdotes in, uh, in modern sort of new age spiritual um, literature and certainly in union uh, psychology. It's sort of his, sort of Jung's specimen case of synchronicity, um, and that's the story where you know this woman, this young woman, who's very very hyper rational and closed off to the mysteries and so forth. She's in his office, and she's telling him her dream that she had the night before that someone gave her a golden a piece of a piece of jewelry that was a golden scarab beetle. Um, and well, just at that moment, while she's telling the story, he hears this tapping on the glass behind him and he turns around and, it, and, it, and at his window is a rose chafer beetle, which is the sort of Europe 
Central European uh, uh, relative, close relative of the Egyptian dung beetle. And he turn, he opens it. He has the presence of mind to open the open the window and let this beetle in and hand it to his patient and say, "Here's your scarab." Okay. Um, and that becomes, you know, this kind of story that that uh, around which he sort of constructs this theory of, of synchronicity. It's not just this one story, but I mean, that becomes his best example, his most famous example of the idea of synchronicity, which is this idea of, of archetypes in the collective unconscious, in this case, a symbol, an ancient symbol of rebirth and metamorphosis, um, somehow manifesting in, rea- in, in real life, including in sort of the material uh, interact physical interaction of, of him and his patient, his patient who happened to need some kind of thing to burst her out of this hyper rational way of thinking and whatever. And so he delivers this this beetle to her, and it sort of opens her to the mysteries or whatever. Well, um, the way I uh, in one of the chapters in my book, I, I think it's kind of my favorite chapter of the book. Actually, I I basically reread. Uh, this story. We happen to now know a lot about this patient. Um, just since I think it was 2014, uh, a Jungian analyst and the curator and one of the curators of the, uh, the Jung Center in Zurich uh, named Vicente de Mora published an article uh, where he revealed the woman's identity and details of her, her biography and also was able to sort of point to where where else she appears in his writings. And this has enabled uh, us to kind of reconstruct her case in a much broader way than just this one paragraph in his writings on synchronicity. Anyway, this woman named Maggie Quarles Van Ufford, she was a Dutch aristocrat. Um, I I look at this as, I I look at, at Jung's sort of theory as kind of a, he didn't intend to mystify things, but I think he he, he sort of uh, threw a monkey wrench in people's thinking about about these these possibilities of retrocausation and precognition uh, by sort of wanting to collapse the time dimension. You know, synchronicity, the very word seems to imply a simultaneity, that, that time is somehow an illusion. Well, I argue that though it's not, it, it's maybe sort of an illusion, the way we usually think of time may be an illusion, but that, that, that we really need to think seriously about how events unfold in sequence and also how, how events in the past may be influenced by things yet to come. And so what I show is that what, what's really happening in this episode is that a woman has a very standard precognitive dream. I mean, the very typical kind of precognitive dream, a slightly symbolic, slightly distorted version of an event that's a very significant event that's going to happen in her life in the very next day, which is that her doctor, this doctor that she's has this transference relationship with, she's sort of uh, in love with in the sort of psychoanalytic sense, um, uh, hands her a scarab beetle and then proceeds to deliver this this wonderful explanation of her life in terms of these archetypes of the collective unconscious and, and it's like you know a very exciting therapeutic moment for her well she just has a precognitive dream about it the night before but that temporal dimension is sort of obscured by Jung's sort of synchronicity explanation 
And um, but the the key of this, the reason what makes it a time loop, is that it was her own telling of the dream that led him to notice the beetle at his window and open the be- open the window, let the beetle in. So there's this causal circularity there. And that causal circularity makes it very hard to talk about these these events. I mean, it's very uh, it, our language it's, it's just not set up to talk about uh, events in the future causing events in the past. And then when you have a loop like that, where do you even begin? So it's kind of you wind up in these circles when you're writing about it. It's very it was a challenge to write about these kinds of events. But uh, when you start studying this uh, this field of, of of parapsychology, when we start studying precognition and synchronicities and uh, prophetic uh, fiction writings and so forth, you wind up again and again with these kind of loop structures where it was somehow the telling of the dream or the writing of the story that precipitated the experience that wound up somehow refluxing in time to to provide the the dream or the or the inspiration that led to the to the story, so it's like you you wind up with these 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 causally circular structures. Again, the self fulfilling prophecy. We usually use that term kind of figuratively, but here I mean it very very literally. Well, and I think one thing the uh, distinction that you make in the in the book that's really important is you distinguish that kind of time loop from one of the classic problems in science fiction time travel stories, which you call the, or other people have called the, the grandfather paradox, like where somehow if you could travel through time, you could go back and kill your grandfather. Well, then how could you be there to kill your grandfather? Da, 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 da. So you get into those kind of like alternative universes that shift depending on the backflow of in this case, you know, you, not just information. And you want to make a big distinction between those kinds of paradoxes and the tautology that you're describing here in terms of the time loop or the self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think it might help to clarify that distinction because as soon as you start talking about time loops, we start automatically going and digging through our science fiction repertoire and finding stories of these kinds of returns. But that's, that's, I think it's for you, it's important to not go down that, uh, that corridor and to maintain that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. Tautologies are not the same thing as paradoxes. In fact, they're kind of the opposite. The reason I think, I think people conflate them. They tend to naturally conflate them because they sort of fall together. uh, And, you know, you're, you're, your teachers or your professors at one point or another, you know, when, when, you know, telling you about faults of logic, you know, would probably, you know, lump them sort of in the same category of, you know, the sort of same, uh, uh, bestiary of, of, of bad things to avoid when thinking, you know, but, uh, a paradox is very different. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's an impossibility. Whereas a tautology is kind of a hyper possibility. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing in, and certainly there's nothing in physical law that prevents 
self-fulfilling prophecies. In fact, there's a whole kind of subdomain of physics and cosmology that, that kind of has addressed this question. Um, that what, what's called in physics, it's called a closed time-like curve. And that is, a again, a causal loop structure. Um, there's uh, there's you know, mathematics and physics to show, yeah, this is just fine. This, uh, this, this, uh, there's no reason this can't happen. Uh, and there's, and by the same token, the same mathematics and physics shows that you can't have paradox, that you can't have that, uh, uh, that, um, grandfather paradox structure, uh, where you somehow prevent the event in the future that, that caused the event in the past that in fact never works. And, and when, when, Physicists, uh, a couple of students of Kip Thorne, the the black hole and wormhole expert uh, at Caltech, you know, they actually worked this out in the 1980s. Uh, they sort of did the math and, and figured out that no, in fact, a, a billiard ball that you know that they, 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 they their model was using billiard balls traveling through a wormhole into the past. The billiard ball would never nudge it. It's, its earlier self away from the mouth of the wormhole. It would always nudge itself into the wormhole. So you wind up with, you wind up with this causally circular structure rather than with uh, any kind of paradox. And there's a, there's a whole literature, and there's even experiments t- where, where uh, retrocausation experiments where you try to, uh, the term is bilking, uh, in, in physics where you try to like prevent a, a prior, uh, event that we, and, and of course it doesn't work. I mean, you just can't have paradoxes by definition impossible and it winds up being impossible in the, in the world as we, as we live in it. So yes, there's an important distinction to be made here between paradox and tautology. And, uh, so we live, I believe in a world of tautology. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the example of Jung because one of one of the many sort of hidden pleasures of your book, meaning that like you didn't necessarily expect it based on the title and the and even the subtitle, uh, is the way in which you you dive into and revise in very rich ways the whole tradition of psychoanalysis, not just with with Jung and his archetypal ideas and his notions of synchronicity but also Freud and the idea of the dream work and how we can look at dreams uh, as, you know, relating, how do we understand the ambiguous language of dreams, their sort of sense of of provocative uh, uh, suggestion, but also weirdness, and and then how we can uh, deal with the traumatic aspects um, that are of the unconscious, of, of psychological uh, experience uh, and all of that stuff was really, um, really wonderfully uh, done. And I thought one place of, of kind of starting to talk about it um, is just to uh, think a little bit more about dreams. And again, Freud's great discovery of the dream work, of the sense that there's some kind of something being hidden or something woven or a kind of symbolic language that's uh, distorted and condensed and surreal, but that there's some kind of meaning there. It's not just noise and it's, it's worth unpacking. Uh, it's worth free associating because those associations themselves have to do with the meanings that are encoded if that's the right word, in any particular kind of dream experience. And then you take that sort of Freudian model and you take it in a really 
unexpected direction by including the possibility that what we mean by the unconscious is in many ways understandable as that capacity of our minds or brains to anticipate the future in certain ways, that that's part of the weirdness of the unconscious is precisely that's where we've located these kinds of capacities. Um, So, you know, in a way, like, I'd just like to hear you unpack that a little bit and particularly talk about how the contemporary understanding of memory helps us understand what's going on in, in the dream world and also gives us a way of understanding how precognition operates as you describe it uh, in terms of dreams. Yeah. Um, the uh, Freud, right. The, the, yeah. The basic argument I'm, I'm making, I think in the second half of the book is, is that uh, the, un- what we've been calling the unconscious and what, well, well, what Freud called the unconscious. He, I don't know if he was the first to use, he really wasn't the first to use that term, but um, what we call the unconscious is really, consciousness displaced in time and that that and by consciousness i mean let's say cognition i'm not i'm not trying to make a broad uh some big claim about what consciousness is but uh you know let's just let's use the term and the term consciousness in kind of the the more reduced fashion the psychologist might be comfortable using the term um that that it's really uh the all these phenomena dreams you know, slips of the tongue, all the other phenomena that, that Freud kind of examined, neurotic symptoms and so forth, may be may reflect our our being influenced by our own future experiences, by traumas and other experiences, upheavals in our own future. Uh, and that they've been redefined. The, the, the psychoanalytic tradition, uh, the psychological tradition more generally has 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 always pointed us pointed our attention to the past, directed our attention to the past. And so, so, you know, Freud's, um, you know, very, very brilliantly and cleverly uh, made everything that happens in our lives, all the unconscious, all the manifestations of the unconscious in our lives, uh, all made it all about our childhood and our past and how we've failed to deal with something in our past. And it's a very brilliant story. And it's, it's one that has been very compelling for, you know, uh, over a century now in our culture. Uh, but there's, you know, Freud's been quote unquote debunked by many, by many angry uh, uh, people from various angles in our culture over the years. And they've pointed to very real problems with his ideas. And yet they've never been able to quite unsettle sort of his basic uh, core insights uh, that, that seem to remain very, very powerful. And what I want to suggest is, hey, let's look at, let's look at this in a new way. Let's, let's, let's think about how uh, what has been called the unconscious uh, may really, maybe the problem might be looking to the past when in fact memory you know, our understanding of memory from a lot of psychological research over the past century, you know, shows that memory, you know, we don't preserve events of our past, certainly not our early childhood, you know, in any kind of pristine way. Um, 
which was kind of central, uh, a central assumption for Freud that we did do that. But in fact, we don't. Memory is this constantly morphing, flowing construct. It's, it's, a, it's a construct about the past. It's not, uh, it's not some pristine representation of the past. Well, maybe, um, uh, you know, it's, we need to really look to the future uh, and, and the influence of future events uh, as, as a part of the puzzle or maybe even the whole puzzle. <laughs> um, one of the, the brilliant, um, well, the study of dreams has kind of been at an impasse for a long time. This is something I go into in one of the chapters of my book, uh, because, you know, on the one hand you have the Freudians who say that, well, it's it's all meaningful and, and here's and it all is repressed wishes. And then on the other hand, you have, uh, neuro, neuroscientists uh, saying, uh, no, it's meaningless, it's just brain processes, blah, blah, blah. There doesn't seem to be any kind of meeting ground uh, between these two perspectives. Well, a few years ago, a psychologist uh, in Manchester named Sue Llewellyn uh, pointed out very brilliantly, I think, that that dreams are ex- are very much like the art of memory. Uh, if you're familiar with the art of memory, um, the, this was this was a technique used by orators in ancient the ancient world, and in fact, it's used by people in non-literate societies everywhere. And in fact, it's used by all of us, even though we're not aware of it. Uh, which is, you make associations, uh, sort of very personal associations, to new knowledge, new information, and and those personal associations become sort of the the threads that connect that new information to older experiences in your memory. And sort of, it's the way you find information in your head. Uh, when you're searching for information, you're following very personal trains of association. Well, it's a very, not only does it brilliantly link up neuro, what we know about the neurobiology of memory with, with the humanities, with this ancient tradition from the humanities, but it also really kind of, res- it kind of um, rehabilitates the Freudian view, which was based on free association, this idea of taking a dream element and just thinking, well, what's the first thing that reminds me of? And that's the way you arrive at, at the so-called meaning in a dream. Well, uh, what I'm suggesting in this book is that, is that, that, that dreams are essentially an art of memory style uh, bundle of associations to future events. Um, and certainly my own experience uh, interpreting my own dreams uh, from the standpoint of precognition has supported that very strongly. And and looking at, uh, at, at precognitive dreams in the published literature, um, it, it also kind of supports that idea. And it's sort of an idea I'm still, you know, I don't think there's any possibility of ever proving this but I think it's, it offers at least a very interesting new uh, framing or a new kind of lens onto, onto the study of dreams and dream work. One interesting thing about, about the, this, this, this idea about memory, our, our more contemporary ideas about memory is something that are, we're constantly refabricating, we're taking chunks and reorganizing them, that it's a moving target, is that it undermines one of the... Uh, the kind of common refrains that you hear from skeptics when there's some kind of extraordinary knowledge that seems to be appearing yeah. in either a dream or some kind of 
um, seemingly paranormal event where they're like, oh, it's cryptomnesia. You know, they've, they've been exposed right. to the information 43 years ago uh, when they read this one encyclopedia. Now it's returned, you know, in, in a disguised form. And, you know, I'm sure that something like that happens sometimes. But again, when you get these sort of repetitive invocations of, of ab- abstract psychological conditions, uh, you know, one should grow a bit skeptical of the of, of the skeptics, and that's an example of one because it becomes harder to explain the return of uh, ancient information as if if you acknowledge that our memories are constantly changing and that they're not just you know written in stone. Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, there's so many. Yeah, it's it, there, there's so many examples of this. Uh, one of the ones I give in the book uh, is of Alec, Sir Alec Guinness, the actor, of course, who played Obi Wan Kenobi, as as we all know. Um, he, you know, he had this this experience around a, a painting uh, in his house. I won't I won't tell the whole story, but but you know something was was bothering him about this painting and this voice in his head was announcing this Bible passage, you know, the chapter and verse Bible passage. And he, um, he had been, he had studied the, he had gone to, to, to uh, religious school in his teens, you know, but he'd long since, you know, he, he had no interest in, in religion or the Bible or anything like that. This was in his, I think he was in his twenties or thirties at this point. Um, but he went and found, he scrounged up a Bible somewhere and found this passage that, that, his, that was going in his head, and you know, it described perfectly, uncannily, that what something that he had not noticed in this painting before. And so, you know, you could naturally, well, the natu- the skeptic's response is going to naturally be oh, cryptomnesia. But uh, what I want to suggest is that if precognition is really as universal a phenomenon as I suggested it would have to be. If it exists at all, it's got to be universal. I and mean, it can't be just this kind of rare, one-off kind of experience. Um, then, you know, his cognition, his, his brain was orienting him to this learning experience that was, I, I use the term latent in his, in the sort of landscape of his life uh, that, that he was about to discover through a self-fulfilling prophecy, again, um, by finding that Bible, opening up, looking at the passage. So it's sort of, a, again, a kind of time loop structure. But I think that it really makes so much of psychology so much more parsimonious to, 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 to think about uh, so much of what we think of as somehow extraordinary feats of memory as really just being extraordinary, not extraordinary, but very mundane feats of precognition, that is being oriented towards information we're about to be exposed to, things we're about to learn. Um, and so, I mean, on the one hand, it seems like you know, a skeptic is just going to go, what? They're, just, <laughs> they're not going to be able to accept that at all. But once you sort of wrap your head around the idea of retrocausation and precognition and sort of accept it, um, you realize that you kind of could simplify a lot of things in psychology, really. I mean, not just not just things like dreams and, and synchronicities, but it could uh, really uh, make a new kind of sense. There's, there's, a, there's a tendency in current psychology to want to flatten the mind. Uh, in fact, there's a new book by Nick Chater called "The Mind Is Flat," and it's the argument is, you know, there's not there there is no 
buried unconscious. There's no unconscious operating behind the scenes. It's all very, it's all very much a flat kind of phenomenon. Well, this would enable the mind to be flat in this kind of satisfying way. Uh, if, if what we've been burying in the, in this kind of illusory unconscious is in fact, uh, our, again, our cognition spread out in time ahead of us as well as behind us. Well, I, 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 okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, just for me, that's another example of one of the in- intriguing aspects of, of your book is that once you grant the impossible premise, you know, that this says that such a thing is possible, it not only solves a lot of problems in this parsimonious way, but it actually supports a, 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 a non-mysterious universe. Like it's once you accept this, this mystery or this, you know, seeming impossibility of precog- precognition, it actually supports not a supernatural view, not a prophetic view, not an oracular view, not a, a mystical view so much as one that's just grounded in biology and in fact makes these other stories seem more arcane and esoteric than they than Yeah, they you know what's be. what's funny about the reaction I've gotten to this book and to my blog is that is that is that people find it actually kind of disappointingly materialist. I don't consider myself a real materialist exactly, but but people who are interested in the paranormal and supernatural and so forth find this argument to kind of threaten, I think, uh, this maybe some of their cherished <laughs> paranormal or supernatural beliefs um, because, uh, because, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it actually kind of reconciles in some way um, uh, things that appear maybe appear supernatural or, or paranormal with, with a kind of uh, maybe not materialist, but actually that the term you want, you suggested once when we were talking uh, the term naturalist uh, view of the world uh, that, you know, this is now, we're not talking about some, some process that is over and above uh, natural processes that we're talking about something that's really embedded in the, in the fabric of biology and physics. And uh, it's just been you know, resolutely overlooked uh, by the enlightenment tradition. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange place to be. I mean, this is kind of what I, what I call, you know, weird naturalism is that, you know, you're, you're really stuck in between because you're going to piss off like the, the, the hardcore, ske- you know, skeptics or rationalists aren't, aren't even going to pay attention to you. They're going to take one whiff of what you're doing and be like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And then, <laughs> so then you're left with people who are interested and a very large percentage of them, not a, well, not a huge, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of us in kind of in the middle, if you will. But there's a large percentage of people who are there precisely because they want some kind of religion or they want some kind of sense that there's another world, you know, that, that the mysteries are true, that the stories they knew were when they were kids are true or, or that there's some, there's some compensation for the banality and flatness of the kind of modern worldview. And I think these things do provide not just compensation, but insights and opportunities for having a broader, more multidimensional view of the world uh, but in my personal, you know, kind of aesthetic or, or ethics, I'm not really sure which, that to, to get that, to get the goods, you have to pay for it with naturalism. 
Like, you could, like panpsychism, I'm very attracted to. I'm very attracted to the idea that there's some kind of mindedness, some mm-hmm. kind of responsive intelligence in everything. Mm-hmm. Subatomic particles, rocks, everything. But in a way, I only allow myself that thought by paying for it with the the observation that that could be seen as just simply another aspect of of the, the unit, you know, so you got you got energy, matter, and consciousness. It's no big mm-hmm. deal. Consciousness right. is there's nothing special about it at all. Maybe right. ours is a little bit more advanced. Okay, it's cool. Maybe we do time binding things that other kinds mm-hmm. of consciousness can't do. But uh, but that banality is actually part of the intrigue. I mean, in in the in right. your in your Phil Dick section, I want to talk to turn to Dick in just a moment. You have a great phrase where you say one of the marvelous things about Phil Dick and the exegesis is the way that it demonstrates the banality of spirituality. And it's kind of an ironic term, but in a way it's also, there's something about that that, that I think really reflects where we are uh, and the way in which your theory, even as you dive into these really crazy possibilities, that you're constantly refusing the temptation to provide exotic enchantment to the reader instead you're going well actually it's just it's just something we do guys you know anyway i just i really admire uh i really admire that i love it i'm like i'm like you're really trying to disenchant my yeah yeah i see what you're doing that's really funny uh so anyway oh yeah so before but before we get to pkd we got about we got about 20 minutes here so um i just want to uh uh just do an acknowledgement that an important part of the story, particularly from a psychoanalytic perspective, is that we're not just precognizing anything. We're precognizing learning, future learning experiences for future events that are emotionally powerful and generally, in, as far as your anecdotes go, traumatic. They're about death, disaster, plane crashes, um, you know, uh, disappointments. So there, there's an aspect of your story that really has to do with trauma and our attraction Unders- to it. Yeah, understood very broadly. And I'm, under, I'm using the term trauma kind of more in a psychoanalytic sense, that the, uh, trauma is something that kind of upsets our expectations of the world. Now that can be, yeah, that can be something big, like, you know, like a disaster, a loss, you know, a death, uh, illness, uh, something like that. And, and certainly those those uh, kinds of events seem, you know, if you study the literature of precognition, there, there's disproportionately somehow the stories that, that come to us seem to be about those things. But when you sort of delve into it uh, and certainly delve into your own dreams and so forth, you realize that, well, trauma has a much broader meaning and it can kind of, it, it can be really anything that, that kind of reframes or reorients your, uh, your perception um, uh, just because it, it challenges you, something that 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 winds up um, giving you a broader perspective, perhaps at the cost of some uh, some of your dignity, maybe you know, like so, you know, you're the sink backing up or falling down a flight of steps or something like that. You know, that those kinds of events or learning experiences that just kind of provoke a, a sort of challenging or disturbing train of thought can also you know be traumatic in that sense. 
uh, so yeah, I want to be clear that when we talk about trauma, we're not necessarily talking about trauma in the vernacular sense of like something really, truly awful. I mean, it can often be just kind of unsettling uh, to our, I don't know, our sense of self. Sure, sure. It's just that the, a lot of the, the classic examples seem to be of, uh, you know, very, very strong events for, I can't remember her name right now, but the, the, the woman, the Houston woman that, that Jeff Kripal talks about, and I think is right. forthcoming. Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like she, she, she got hit by lightning and then she started to record her own, um, premonitions essentially. And she would write emails to herself. So they would be, uh, time stamped and mm-hmm. they, um, and many of them seem some sort of uncannily, uh, predictive of a, a lot of them were airline crashes. So there was some sort of relationship with that kind of like, and I guess what part, part, partly the reason I ask about it is that we're in this interesting place because we're so inundated with news and information all day long. We, we kind of slightly traumatize ourselves with the latest yeah. slice of horror uh, yeah. and, and, and so there, it, it seems to me it's, there, there's some connection if, if you will, or there's some dimension of what we're doing to ourselves with our constant exposure to the ongoing crisis on so many different levels in our, in our world right now, uh, yeah. that, that kind of involves this strange attraction to trauma, mm-hmm. you know, a need to control it, but also the desire to return to it. And whether or not that has to do with precognition, it does seem to be a very, uh, you know, basic thing that's that's happening now. This, this this kind of relationship to trauma that you talk about to some extent. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why I uh, the, the notion you know I use this kind of it's kind of a pre- pretentious French term you know jouissance. Uh, it's but it's we you're only forced to use it because there isn't really a good translation in English. But it's this kind of notion of enjoyment that's kind of repellent. This kind of repellent enjoyment, um, and this is why I'm, I I kind of, even though he's become the sort of bloated jab of the hut of philosophy, I really kind of love Slavoj Žižek because he, you know, he sort of made jouissance the sort of core of his cultural theory and, and, uh, and our engagement with, 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 with the media and with politics and so forth. This kind of study of this, this repellent enjoyment that flows through our social life right now in this hypermediated era. And so, uh, he, you know, he's always been sort of a philosophical touchstone for me. And, uh, and that notion of jouissance really, I think is what it's, what, it's, it's sort of the, the signal line of precognition, that kind of future jouissance uh, uh, sort of refluxing back or, or resonating back along your world line. Um, uh, so these future kind of these, these future events where we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, both attracted and repelled by some piece of information. Um, and disasters are a perfect example, you know, nine, like 9-11, you know, it's like, okay, on the one hand, you just, you, you can describe it as a trauma, but it was a trauma in a very specific psychoanalytic sense that we were all, like, we were all riveted to our TVs, you know? I mean, we were enjoying this in this horrible, vampiric kind of way. And uh, you have to kind of make a place for that in your understanding of these events and how they impact us. And it's precisely those kind of conf- conflicted 
contradictory, paradoxical emotions that I think precognition focuses on in the future. And like even going back to just an innocent example, like the beetle, you know, arriving at Jung's window. Well, that moment, you know, it did, I mean, Jung was right. it did well. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, I'm assuming he was honest there. That you know, it it, it sort of expanded her. It, it 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 opened her to something, and it was something she wanted. That that kind of opened uh, perspective on her life, um, and that too is a kind of trauma in the sense that it's it's destroying a previous self conception and replacing it with something newer and broader. And of course, Jung called it individuation, but you know, that too is a kind of survival of a kind of destruction and so it's sort of that, that same jouissance logic you know can explain even something as innocent seeming as a dream about uh, someone handing you a piece of scarab jewelry yeah no that, that that makes that makes sense i mean i think part of the reason i'm i'm, I'm pushing the, the questions in this direction is is leading into uh you know talking about uh, about phil dick because one of the yeah. interesting things about dick is that if you're really going you know going into the whole the whole shebang you, you all of the the cool stuff you know the 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 brilliant novels the strange prophecies the um you know the the exoticism of his own experiences the, his kind of mystical insights his strange paranormal experiences that all of that is happening in the context of immense sometimes immense psychological suffering like the dude was yeah. a major he was a hurting pup. And yep. the relationship of that, you know, whether you're a fan or a scholar or whatever, but it, but that relationship is, is really a key element. And it seems to me that that um, that traumatic trace, if that tra- traumatic trace is part of the signature of precognition, it would make sense that this most precog of Right of sci-fi writers, if not of writers in general, yeah. uh, is such a deeply, you know, traumatized person, like someone who was, who has had so much psychological yeah. and personal suffering, um, yeah. and yet out of that he made amazing art. And as as I applauded when I read in your book, as you described, the exegesis is definitely one of the most important spiritual works in the in the 20th century, which I, I very much, uh, believe now people have, what, what do you think when we're looking at the, at the situation of, of PKD, what do you think is most important to keep in mind in terms of discussing these precognitive elements, elements in his stories that seem to predict future events, then you can even sort of see them through time or indeed his own descriptions of his, uh, prophetic dreams and and there's so much material in his in mm-hmm. his vast corpus. What what how how would you like help guide someone through that? Because it can be very overwhelming and very strange if you're really interested in finding traces of uh, these precognitive I- events. Yeah, well, there there's so many traces, and honestly, I you know I I'm just the latest in a long <laughs> in a long pretty long line of people writing about these phenomena in Fuldick's life. And in fact, you know, there are only two chapters in this in this book that really scared me to publish because I was just afraid of what 
what people who know so much better about the topic were going to come back and, and say, and that's one of them is the Phil Dick chapter, and the other one is the quantum physics chapter, because I'm not a quantum physicist. But, the, you know, the, the, the Phil Dick stuff, you know, it's like, you know, you're a, a much bigger uh, expert on Phil Dick than I am. So, and so many people have written about these experiences. But the one thing that I think the contribution I kind of wanted to make, in addition to sort of highlighting a few uh, precognitive experiences, a couple of which have been written about before, and a couple of which I think are uh, that I'm the first to, I, to my knowledge, to point out. But uh, there's there's so many. I mean, you just go to his letters and you start seeing seeing these things. Uh, not to mention his fiction. But uh, the the I guess the the perspective that I am into it. Uh, that might be original, I hope, is the is the notion that maybe these precognitive experiences were satisfying a need in him, and that that need was not to see the world as as these you know constantly shifting realities and all that stuff that we sort of associate with Phil Dick, but that the, the, the need was exactly the opposite to see this block universe underlying it all and that that in that block universe you know it's not phil dick's little phil dick's fault that his twin sister died you know in infancy and not his fault that he got addicted to amphetamines and not his fault you know that that he had all these failed marriages and that you know his life was full of all this suffering and kind of failure um that that precognition kind of satisfies a certain need for absolution in the block universe. Um, and it was actually, uh, it was actually in studying the, the, this other science fiction writer from a century ago, the one who predicted the Titanic, um, uh, Morgan Robertson, that, that kind of gave me this altered, I guess, perspective on Phil Dick because, uh, this, this psychoanalyst, Jewel Eisenbud, a psychoanalyst and parapsychologist wrote this very brilliant, um, sort of interpretation of Morgan Robertson, you know, sort of his, his, he was again, a very neurotic science fiction writer, you know, had an addiction in that case to alcohol. And, you know, his life was full of these synchronicities and precognitive experiences that he winds up writing a story about an ocean liner called the Titan that, that's struck by an iceberg. And this, this is 14 years before, you know, the Titanic sinks and so forth. Well, and there's so many parallels uh, between Morgan Robertson and Phil Dick, including the age at which they died, sort of the, just, just a lot of, a lot of weird parallels. And, and Jewel Eisenbud's sort of diagnosis of Morgan Robertson was that he was, that, you know, his precognition kind of satisfied this need to, to absolve himself, to be absolved of these shameful things in his life, such as his addiction. Um, and uh, because that's what, you know, a good precognitive experience provides this sense of it's all inevitable. The future already exists. So there's nothing I could have done differently. And then I went, and that may seem like, well, that just absolves us of responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, look at it from the opposite point of view. We're all neurotic. We're all failures in some way. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's, maybe it's worth kind of sitting with this idea of predestination, if you want to put it that way, or yeah. block universe. I, I mean, I, I, think, I, I just just to interrupt. I think that that you're you're uh, that as a reading of Phil Dick's need, it, it's a it is a real contribution. It really helped me see um, some of the ways in which he flirts with 
the deterministic model in the exegesis, even though he also resists mm-hmm. it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and what it, what it ties into, uh, in a way, is a, a part of our earlier, I mean, this might be a little bit way out of a thought, but the, that our earlier conversations about jouissance, this idea of like a pleasure that's also kind of repulsive, is that there's something in that determinism yeah. that is like that. Because yeah, inside determinism, there's this great relief it's great relief in a way, but the relief is coupled with this very sober, sometimes sort of grim accounting of all of these places where we put our hope and our ability to change and to make decisions and to grow and da da da. And those things might still happen, but you really got to let a lot of stuff go to really embrace that universe. So it's a, it, it itself is a kind of space of, of of jouissance and and i think you can see that in in dick's relationship to the to the metaphysics too yeah yeah totally totally um what do you uh uh like how how um how do you deal with the fact that as you 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 write about that our world itself seems to be becoming more Phil Dickian, you know, in a way that's not particularly pleasant for us? Uh, it, 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 sometimes it almost feels like we, we shouldn't be reading him as much, or you shouldn't be leaking into Hollywood as much because <laughs> we getting we're getting into a self fulfilling prophecy that 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 kind of bastard trickster set us up for. Uh, but th- there is a, like an additional kind of looping quality to just the way people respond to him or, or dream about him or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you yourself end the, end the book with a, a prophetic dream from many years ago in your life. Uh, and some of the elements of that dream are, are clearly tied to the stuff you only discover much later um, about Phil Dick. Uh, yeah. There's something, there's something particularly enigmatic about his work that way, where you, you feel like you're entering into some kind of looping game that is both fascinating and a little menacing well this is uh this is kind of where i'm going in the next book (laughs) the sequel to time loops will be sort of about this relation to culture uh this kind of precognitive relation to culture and that in a way certain uh certain texts uh act as you know the, the term in chaos theory is strange attractors uh, the they they act as attractors that that sort of draw us toward them and that we wind up precognizing them before we read them, and I think Dick's work, uh, not only his writings but just his life, kind of learning about his life, and maybe it, I think it, I honestly think it has something to do with his name, and and we and I talk about it in the book, and we don't need to talk about it here, but the, the there are aspects of Dick that are that 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 act as some sort of associative attractor in the mind of future readers, you know, people who haven't read him yet. And it was certainly in the case of, for me, you know, I, I do, I don't, in the book, I don't really talk about my own precognitive dreams except for one at the end where I, and, and it certainly centered partly on, on Phil Dix and his life. And, uh, that I didn't yet know about at the time of the dream. But, uh, I, I think that, that, that there are other figures that exert a similar power. And I suspect that the great religious, the great writers of religious texts throughout history, I suspect, I suspect that those texts or themselves have had that same quality, that somehow it unsettles us in precisely the right way that we wind up coming to those texts 
having precognized them. And as a result, they have an uncanny power over us because, oh my God, there's something familiar here. And I'll, you know, there's a, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite pieces of writing, probably probably most influential piece of writing for me is uh, what Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance. And he has a, a great line in there about how we come to texts that he's sort of making an argument for why we need to express ourselves and, and have courage to express ourselves. Because if we don't, we will read our own ideas in someone else's work. And those, well, those texts will then have what he calls an alienated majesty about them. Well, I think that there's a way in which maybe all of our original ideas really flow from our future, flow from things we will read in our future. And that that experience of alienated majesty, of, of finding, finding ourselves described in a text is really a reflection, one of these reflections of precognition, and that it's really kind of the, the motor of creativity, or it is creativity, that, that kind of reading into our future, or, or, or drawing from our future, and then, and then finding it confirmed somehow. And artists are those who are able to kind of create from this uncertain state of precognition, and then, and then find them what they've written confirmed <laughs> in either other things that they've, they read or in their own lives or whatever. Uh, and they're just an innumerable cases of this. I had to cut like tons of chapters from the book because it was just getting too long. Well, but, I, I look forward to, to your, to your further studies and, and I, I would have to congratulate you by saying that I, I believe you may have written one of those enigmatic <laughs> texts that certain <laughs> readers will find uh, sort of a chillingly uh, on on point, uh, disturbingly familiar as if they've read it before, <laughs> perhaps in some looping universe that uh, even now we're participating in. However, the time clock uh, of linear causality is still ringing, so we're going to have to wind it up here. Eric Wargo, War- thanks you so much for uh, our, our two-episode our two uh, run here for on Expanding Mind. Oh, this has been a wonderful, really fun conversation. Thank you, Eric. Great. Once again, uh, Eric's the author of Time Loops, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious, and he blogs at The Nightshirt. I highly recommend uh, re- checking out that blog. It's, uh, it's constantly interesting. So until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>